Hello everyone, welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Amy Foster and it's always a great pleasure to be studying with you each week. I'm excited to be with you this week. Thanks for joining us. You know, as, we as I prepared this lesson, I wondered if how many of you have had someone come into your life and just invest in you? Maybe it was um, a professional person helping you grow and develop in your career, or maybe it was a spiritually mature woman agreeing to walk alongside you as a mentor for a period of time. You know, my dad is often the person who fills that need in my life. He is known to pull old books off of his bookshelves and gently put them in my hands, letting me know it's time for you to study this. It's time for you to read this. He also purchases new books for me and delivers them to my house as well. He talks to me about what I'm learning, what I'm struggling with. He prays for me until those struggles are resolved. He's been a true mentor. And the truth is we never hear people say, oh, I wish people would stop investing in me so much. Nobody ever says that because it's a wonderful thing and it's oftentimes a necessary thing because none of us know the season ahead. None of us know in advance what difficult things we are going to be called upon to navigate. And it's so wonderful and helpful to have someone prepare us. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. His disciples have a great challenge ahead. Jesus knows they have no idea how difficult, how disorienting it's going to be when they see Jesus crucified and then placed in a tomb. And then they're going to celebrate at the resurrection. But when they are leading the New Testament church, they're in uncharted waters. There will be conflict and division and false teaching, even persecution. They have no idea that any of that is coming. But Jesus knows. He knows what's ahead for them. He wants to teach them and prepare them for those days. Jesus knows their number one need is for their faith to grow. So our study today picks up in John chapter 11. And you may remember that chapter 10 ended with the angry religious leaders in Jerusalem picking up stones. They were ready to kill Jesus. It was not the first time they had reached for those stones. They believe Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. He's made himself equal with God and that is an offense punishable by death. So the entire region of Judea with Jerusalem in the center of that region, they are openly hostile to Jesus right now. We also know that up north in Galilee, they've been resisting Jesus and opposition is growing there as well. So where does Jesus choose to go in the interim? Take a look at your maps. We'll put this on the screen for you here. Jesus chooses to withdraw from Judea and he goes into the area across the Jordan River. And this area is known as Perea. You'll see that on your map. This is the area where John the Baptist was doing his ministry, perhaps the area where Jesus was baptized. And the most important thing about this area, it's away from the threat. It's away from the hostility. And Jesus has three and a half months left before he is going to go to the cross. And during this time, Jesus has one goal. He is strengthening the faith of his disciples. He's preparing them for their ministry after his resurrection. 
So much of what he does in Perea will have a public aspect to it. There will be witnesses, but really all that he's doing in Perea is personal. This is the time where he is focused on growing his disciples' faith and strengthening them. And so it's as if all the chaos is swirling around him and Jesus has this laser-like focus on the true disciples, the ones who stay with him and follow him during this time. That would definitely include the 12, the men whose names that we know, but it would be a bigger group. It will be the people who don't fall away, the people who continue to believe in Jesus. And I wanna remind you when John uses the word believe, it's a bigger word than simply intellectual understanding. No, John uses the word believe and what's implied in it is this idea of entrusting yourself to. So it's not just agreeing in your head, but it's also committing your whole life to Jesus. And what we see as we watch Jesus grow this belief and this commitment, we see very quickly, belief is not a stagnant, fixed thing. It's an ever-evolving, growing thing. And what we also see is it happens for those who stay with Jesus. So begin reading with me. We're in John chapter 11. We'll start in the first verse. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. All right, take a look at your maps one more time. I want you to notice Jesus is across the Jordan in this area, Perea, but this message comes to him from Bethany. Now, it's confusing because there's two cities named Bethany on your map. We're looking at the Bethany that is west of the Jordan River. It's just two miles from Jerusalem. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus are. I just want you to know that's the Bethany. That's basically a suburb of Jerusalem. It would be an easy walk between Bethany and Jerusalem, but it's a long walk from this Bethany to Perea. That means it would take a messenger a full day to carry this message from Mary and Martha all the way to Jesus. And John writes of this devoted family as if you already know who they are. He's writing of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Most likely he's presuming that you've already read the other gospel accounts that they were written earlier. And so he's not introducing Mary and Martha so much here, but he is emphasizing one key thing. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That's repeated over and over. Jesus considered them his true friends, his dear friends. They were among the true disciples that remain with Jesus. So when the sisters send this brief message to Jesus, we really know what is implied. They're true friends. They know they are loved by Jesus. They know Jesus has power over every kind of disease that's out there. So the message may read, Lazarus is ill, but the meaning of the message, Jesus, beloved friend, come quickly heal our 
brother. That is the meaning of the message. They have faith in Jesus, but at this time, their faith is on the smaller side. Jesus is about to increase it profoundly. The book of John opens with the truth that Jesus existed in the beginning with God. Jesus was eternally present with God. And we know that in heaven, his glory shows it's brilliant, it's radiant, it's better than diamonds. We know he's worshiped all the time there. But when Jesus came down into the ordinary affairs of human life, he veiled all that brilliance. He veiled that deity by taking on human skin. I think partly he came to us in a way that we could recognize him. But bit by bit, all through his earthly ministry, he's peeling back that veil just a little bit. He's letting his glory and his deity show through. That's part of what he's doing in all these signs that he's demonstrating. And the truth is the full glory of God, the full glory of Jesus is more than we can imagine. I think that's why it's said of us, we still see through a glass dimly. And so Jesus with us also, he's slowly pulling back the veil and he's showing us more and more of his deity. And for those who stay with Jesus, we see more and more. And our view, our vision of Jesus, it goes from this to this to this. The more time we spend with him, the greater view we have of him. As our vision grows, our faith grows. And that's how it always is with Jesus. So in this story, Jesus communicates right away, this illness is part of the divine plan of God. And that means it has a divine purpose. And it's hard for us to embrace this idea, but the purpose has nothing to do with Lazarus or Lazarus healthier. The purpose is that God's glory would shine brightly through God's son. And I love that over here in Perea, Jesus is not shying away from the fact that he is the son of God. He's making that abundantly clear here. So God's purpose for this illness is about God's glory shining through his son. And Jesus does the very unexpected thing. He doesn't rush to the bedside of his dear beloved friend, but he delays an additional two days. So think with me, it takes one full day to get the message from Bethany to Jesus that his friend is sick. That's the first day. Now Jesus delays two more days, three days pass by and the story picks up in verse seven. Now after this, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then in verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
All right, once again, Jesus is displaying his divine knowledge here. At this point, he's communicating. He knows that Lazarus has already died, but he also knows, again, this is part of God's bigger divine plan here. So the delay of Jesus is setting the stage for God's real purpose, that the disciples, the followers, would have their faith expanded. This was never a punishment because their faith was too small. It was a grace to allow their faith to grow so that they would trust Jesus more and rely on Jesus more. And so now we have Jesus planning to return to this very hostile area in Judea where the danger is real. And when he's questioned about the risk, he uses this language, those who walk in the day or walk in the light have absolutely nothing to fear. That's language Jesus uses often, and it means those who are doing the will of God in the light, in the day, nothing to hide. And so Jesus is here on God's mission, and that means nothing is going to happen to him outside of God's will. But I hope you noticed in this exchange, Jesus does not command the disciples to go with him into the danger zone. He invites them, let us go. And so what we see there, they each get to make the choice. What will they do? Will they go with Jesus into this fearful unknown setting or will they step away from him here? Thomas speaks up. He sounds a little bit like gloomy Eeyore. Let's all go so we can die with him. And when I first read that, I almost want to laugh, but then I'm sobered. I see, you know, the disciples understood the murderous hostility that was directed at Jesus. The disciples still had visions of those angry men ready to throw stones in their minds. But despite the real fear, they stay with Jesus. They stay with him. They had a choice and they choose to stay even when the plan is terrifying. So here's the timeline. It took one full day for the, Je- for the message to reach Jesus. Most likely Lazarus died before Jesus even received that message. Jesus delays on day two and day three. Now, as they've decided to return, it requires a full day of travel to get to Bethany. So we have four days delay and we have to pay attention to the fact that this is a divine delay. So I want us to consider what is happening during the divine delay. There's lots of possibilities. I think definitely Lazarus' death at this point is a confirmed reality. Lazarus isn't someone who's been languishing on the verge of death. Lazarus breathed his last, his heart stopped, his lungs stopped. He was wrapped in burial clothes. He was placed in a tomb. A stone sealed the tomb. That means four days, no water, no food, no heartbeat, no breathing for four days. Most likely, physical decomposition has set in. This delay of God is confirming the reality that Lazarus is dead. The second thing I think that's happening in the delay, the family, the friends, the true disciples, they really would be in the deepest, most exhausted state of their mourning by this time after four days. Um, And this would be the very best moment for Jesus to step in, give them a big vision of himself and grow their faith because this is a desperate moment when they have nothing 
else to hold on to. And we have to remember, letting them be in this desperate moment is not a punishment because their faith is small. It is a grace to grow their faith. So Jesus' delay is not disinterest toward his beloved friends, but is totally in keeping with the divine plan and purpose of God here. John lets us know that when Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And he also lets us know there's a great crowd there. And I love that because in the book of John, a great crowd means many witnesses. These are people who will give testimony and they are a lot. You know, in Jewish culture, two witnesses are required. We've got way more than two witnesses at this scene. But we also know many of these witnesses came from Jerusalem, the most hostile place. And so we can, um, we can believe that some of these are dangerous witnesses who don't want the big vision of Jesus to be shown in this moment. We also know from this large crowd that this family was loved and respected by the Jewish community that came out for this prolonged period of mourning and comfort. And history tells us that these people would usually remain for 30 days. It was a long time to mourn and grieve together. And so as Jesus enters Bethany, Martha is the one who takes charge. Martha is always the activist when we see her in the scriptures. She doesn't wait for Jesus to arrive at her home. She rushes out to meet Jesus. Let's read about that in verse 21. She went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And then verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Okay, here's what Martha knows. She knows Jesus loved and could have healed Lazarus, but he didn't. Martha has a choice to make in this moment too. Martha didn't have to rush out and meet Jesus. She could have stayed in her house and sent Jesus a second message that said, Jesus, too little, too late. She could have done that or she could have rushed out to meet him with an angry fist, why didn't you heal my brother? I know you have the power. Why didn't you do what I expected you to do? I won't follow you anymore. You know, I've read numerous studies and research that say the number one reason people turn their back on God and faith and religion is because God doesn't answer a heart-wrenching prayer. And Martha had that choice here, but she doesn't make that. Instead, she goes to Jesus, and it's important to pay attention to what she's saying. She's expressing her belief. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She's expressing belief that Jesus loves and he has power to heal. She also goes on to let us know she believes Jesus has a unique connection and relationship to God and can ask for anything. And in spite of all that she believes, her brother is still dead in a tomb. I know Martha is crushed, but she makes the choice to take her despair and her confusion to Jesus 
in faith. And Jesus makes her a promise. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha gives the perfect Sunday school answer here. She says, I believe in the doctrine of resurrection. I know what you're talking about. There is an Old Testament doctrine of resurrection. You can read just a little bit about it in Daniel chapter 12 or Isaiah 26. It's a view that when the Messiah comes and fully sets up his kingdom, he will resurrect people from the dead. So Martha is sitting there saying, I believe the theology of resurrection. And Jesus looks her square in the eye and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Those were pretty powerful words. I want us to take them apart and figure out what they mean. Uh, John 1, 4, John started his whole book, his gospel here with a reminder to all of us that Jesus existed in the beginning with God. And he says in verse four, in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. John began this book reminding us that Jesus was a part of creation. With God, he created everything. With God, he put life in every living thing. Jesus gave life to mankind. But we know that Jesus has an enemy who is opposed to life. Satan is described in John 8, verse 44. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of lies. So what we know about Satan, beginning in Genesis chapter three, Satan lies, he deceives people into disobedience. And that disobedience puts us under a curse and makes us condemned and physical death and spiritual death occur as a result. That is our human condition under the curse of death. Ephesians two verse one describes this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Jesus who gives life when life is corrupted and condemned, that's when Jesus comes into this world to pay the penalty, to take the condemnation on himself. Jesus, the one who originally gives life, is also the one who resurrects us from death to life. He overcomes Satan and sin and death on the cross. And then he affects resurrection and eternal life for all who believe in him. Again, Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. That's what Jesus means when he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I think he's looking at Martha, and if we were to paraphrase in our language, he says, Martha, I know you believe resurrection doctrine. Do you believe me? Do you believe me? Because I'm the source of resurrection. I'm the power of resurrection. I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? And every person who's ever drawn breath has had to answer the same question Martha was asked. Do you believe this? And listen to her answer. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who's coming into the world. It's a great moment for Martha. I don't know if any of you noticed this. This is almost identical to the profession that Peter makes 
when Jesus stands with the disciples in Caesarea Philippi and says, who do you say I am? And Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus do next? Upon this, I am building my church. That is the basis, the foundation for the New Testament church. It's the confession of Peter. It's the confession of Martha. It's the confession of you and me. We believe you are the Christ. Way to go, Martha. This is her bright, shiny moment. If she had stayed in her house, disappointed with Jesus, done with Jesus because he didn't answer her prayer, she never would have had this encounter that changed her faith and expanded her view of who Jesus really is. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It is our job as true disciples to seek Jesus and Jesus promises to show up. That's exactly what happens to Martha right now. And you know, we all know most of us will experience the kind of inner conflict Martha is in. We will experience this many times in our lives when Jesus doesn't do the miracle that we're hoping for, the thing that we are expecting. And we just have to know it's a great test of our faith, but it is a greater struggle between God and Satan for your trust. That is the big struggle that's happening there. You're not going to lose your salvation in this moment, but Satan wants your joy. He wants your peace. He wants your hope. He wants you to doubt the goodness of God and your vision of God and your trust that's out here. He wants to shrink it and compress it so that you don't have an abundant life. When you stay with God in these moments, you can trust that God shows up. And these are the moments when you see the fullness of God and you see a bigger vision than you've ever seen before. Bigger vision always leads to bigger faith. Next, Jesus calls for beloved Mary. He's had his encounter with Martha. Look at verse 31. When the Jews who were with her, Mary, in the house consoling her, when they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Okay, this is Mary's turn, and Mary, just like Martha, has made a choice here. She goes to Jesus. I want to point out she's choosing obedience because Jesus has called for her. So obedience is one way we stay with Jesus. She goes as an obedient choice, and now look at the dramatic scene that is unfolding. Uh, Jesus is really setting the stage for a large group of witnesses to move all the way to Lazarus' tomb, where he's about to give everyone a bigger vision than they have ever seen before. 
Mary, just like Martha, she doesn't come to Jesus with an angry fist. She comes to Jesus with a broken heart and she falls at his feet. And in that posture, we definitely see her submission and her devotion, but we also see her heart that's just been wrenched with grief. And just like Martha, she comes with faith. If you had been here, she knows Jesus loves and she knows Jesus has power to heal. And what she's doing is beautiful. She's holding on to the truths of Jesus, even when Jesus doesn't perform to her liking. So she's collapsed at Jesus' feet. She's weeping. The whole crowd has come out. All the mourners, they're weeping. It's just a heavy, crushing, grief-filled scene. And we read, Jesus is deeply moved in spirit. He's greatly troubled and Jesus weeps. And let me just tell you, so much is written about this experience Jesus is having right now. And the first thing that we see, Jesus is not remote or unfeeling. And that's what we suspect him of because he's delayed all this time. He's not remote and unfeeling. He's showing he's always close to the brokenhearted here. Jesus is described in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I think that's happening here. Jesus is carrying their sorrows and he's moved to tears with them. But I also believe that moved in his spirit means something else as well. We have to remember Jesus came to give life. The enemy works to destroy life. That's what Jesus is witnessing in this scene. He's witnessing the work of the enemy who has destroyed Lazarus' physical life, trying to destroy hope and joy and peace. And many people believe these words moved in the spirit also means stirred up with holy rage. Jesus is seeing the tyranny of Satan in this world and he's angry, he's stirred with holy rage. So I believe that's true. I believe it's both grief and sorrow for the pain that his friends are experiencing and it's also anger and rage that Satan is doing this work in the world. You know, I have a dear and respected friend who is living with cancer And that means that she is dealing with all of cancer's destructive work in her body. And she told me one time for a very brief period of time, she was having trouble praying and going to God simply because she was angry. And I just think this story is hers. It's totally hers. Don't let your anger be a barrier to going to God. Know that God is angry too. He's angry. He's angry about death and cancer and divorce and family strife and addiction. God is angry. He's angry at Satan and that this destructive work happens in the world. We don't ever need to stay away from God because we are angry. When we suffer, Jesus is not detached. He is carrying our sorrows with him and he is roaring at the enemy who is doing this work in our lives. What happens next? Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for days. 
Okay, I think there's a big, awful, dreadful pause in this moment. Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha says, no, stop, stop. It's just chaotic. We've got this big crowd of mourners that have been following Mary around to the scene. And we have to remember this isn't polite American quiet mourning. This is Eastern ancient mourning. It's loud. It's wailing. It's dropping into the dust, beating the chest, throwing dust into the air. That mourning would last for 30 days, but I've read that it would be most intense in the first three to four days. They've had four days of this kind of crushing weight, disorienting grief that confuses you, that exhausts you, that makes it hard to think, that makes it hard to sleep. Mary's on the ground crying, the crowd is crying, and Jesus says the unimaginable, take away the stone, and all Martha can do is say, no, no, Lord. Jewish culture doesn't embalm their bodies. They wrap them in clothes and bury them quickly. Martha knows if you open that stone, that tomb, our brother will be disfigured. It will be a horror. It will be a bigger trauma than we've already been through. No, don't touch that stone. I think her grief has crushed her hope and she cannot believe that a miracle is possible here. I think everyone's holding their breath. And in that pause, Jesus locks eyes with Martha one more time and reminds her of the faith that she just proclaimed. And he says, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God. If you believed, if you entrust this to me, you will see the glory of God. Martha had just said she believes Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus wants to show her. He wants to show her. He wants to show her a bigger vision she's ever seen, but Jesus won't do it without her permission. There's a reference here that she is the sister of the dead man. And what that means, Mary and Martha, the relatives, they have authority over that gravesite. Jesus can say, roll away the stone, but Mary and Martha have to give permission for that to happen. They have to stay with Jesus and agree to this thing. And they do. Verse 41 goes on in the story. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus interrupts this miracle with his prayer, again, reminding them this is not about Lazarus. That's not what this is about. It's about showing all of you a bigger picture of Jesus than you've ever seen before. He's just claimed to be the resurrection and the life. And now he wants to demonstrate it so their faith will grow. It's so that they would all believe. Verse 43, when they had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. They've never seen anything like this before. As they unbind Lazarus, what is uh, implied here, there's no decay 
There's no terrible smell. There's no sunken chest devoid of oxygen. There's only physical evidence that this man lives. He lives. There's no death. There's no decompensation. Death and decay have been overcome by Jesus. The other gospel accounts uh, show two other instances of Jesus resurrecting someone from death to life, but this is considered the most significant. Um, It's the only time the dead body has sat dead and decomposing for four days, but it's also the one that happens closest to Jerusalem. They're in the suburbs of Jerusalem. They're literally at the front porch of the place where the conflict is the greatest. This is also the clearest sign pointing to the full identity of Jesus as the Messiah who's come to save. And it's also a great preview. It's a preview of the resurrection power that they will see in three and a half months at Jesus' own garden tomb. It's a preview of the resurrection power we have all experienced as Jesus moves us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it's also a preview of the power that Jesus will demonstrate when he calls the dead in the final resurrection. You can read about that in Revelation. So why does God give them a preview? So the true disciples can see him more clearly than they've ever seen him before. Seek the Lord and the Lord will show up. Jesus shows his identity. He gives these visions to people who stay and search and wait and seek. But we quickly see in the story, not everyone is a seeker. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he said to them, you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Okay, all the witnesses there in Bethany saw the exact same thing and they all reported the exact same thing. No one is disputing that Lazarus was dead and now Lazarus is living. Raising Lazarus from the dead was the proof that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's not being disputed here. Many caught a great vision of him that day. They believed, they put their trust in him forever, but others, they went to the enemy and they gave their testimony there. So we're told that the council, this is also called the Sanhedrin, that they convene. That's the highest judicial body among the nation of Israel. And it's made up of the chief priests, they're also called Sadducees, and the Pharisees. 
But we have to remember they're all ultimately still subject to Rome. This is the Roman Empire. But Rome has given the Jews this dispensation that they still get to be their own little nation and that their leaders have this judicial power over them as long as Roman peace and Roman loyalty is not disturbed. So we can quickly understand here, it's made very clear, they're motivated by self-preservation. Jesus is indisputably the Messiah, but if the people start following him and he sets up a kingdom, Rome will come in and they might crush the kingdom. And the leaders would lose both their power and their position as this distinct nation within the empire. So they make a dreadful choice here. They choose ongoing favor with Rome over Jesus and the kingdom of God. Caiaphas is the high priest, and we're going to hear more about Caiaphas in the chapters to come. He formally presents the plan to kill Jesus with the words, it's better for you that one man should die for the people. And Caiaphas is using sacrificial lamb language here. He's suggesting an innocent one needs to die as a substitution for the guilty. And the truth is Caiaphas is the one who's guilty of blasphemy here, not recognizing the identity of Jesus. Caiaphas and everyone else who refuses to recognize the Messiah, they are guilty of blasphemy. And Caiaphas is acting on his own free will, but we see that God is sovereign and in control. And Caiaphas' words are used as a prophecy. And one writer says, this is the last prophecy for the nation of Israel. One would die for the people. Jesus would die as a substitution for guilty people, but not as a political pawn to save the nation from Rome. Jesus would die to fulfill completely all that God foreshadowed when he created the nation of Israel, the law and the sacrificial system. And Jesus would die to draw together from every nation and every tribe true believers, true followers, to create the kingdom of God and the New Testament church. Ephesians 2 describes this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. No longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God's plan from the very beginning was that Jesus would come. He would uncover his deity and be a light for all the nations so that salvation would reach the ends of the earth. The Jewish leadership from this point moving forward, they are committed to a fixed course of action. And it's not a trial for an accused man, but it's a death sentence for an innocent man. You won't see them debating this issue much more. Look at verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So Jesus is controlling the story and the storyline. He is avoiding the final conflict with the Jews until the appropriate time when he makes his triumphal entry into Israel and he allows himself to be sacrificed on the cross. 
So he leaves this region so that they don't have a premature conflict. He goes out into the wilderness. We don't know the exact location of this ancient town, but many believe it's back across the Jordan River. It's back in Perea. And John leaves us with this uh, premonition, sort of this message, Passover is coming. Passover is coming and we see that the plans are being made for the last sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And in some ways, it's a truly tragic part of Jesus' story when he was on earth because so many people have seen him and they've heard him and they've witnessed him and their hearts are hardened and they fall away. But it's also a beautiful time in his story because it's beautiful to see his laser-like focus on all of his true disciples, desiring to give them a bigger vision and grow their faith. We live in that moment today. We live in a time when people see Jesus and their hearts are hardened and they refuse to recognize him. But Jesus has a laser-like focus on you today. He wants for you to have a bigger vision. He wants you to have bigger faith. Look at 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. We see such a clear picture that our faith, our trust is not a stagnant thing. It has the capacity to be ever growing and we can never fully have the picture of God's infinite glory and power. It's beyond what we can imagine. But we do have an assurance that if we stay with Jesus, our life can be this continual progression, a continual experience of seeing more of God and our faith growing and growing. I don't know if you noticed all of the if statements in this story. Thomas is saying, if we die, we'll all be together. From Thomas, we learn stay with Jesus when you're afraid, when you're fearful, when the future is unknown, and you'll learn that you are always safe when you are following the will of God. Martha is next. She says, Jesus, if you had been here, So we learn from Martha, stay with Jesus when your hopes are crushed. And you'll learn that everything centers on the identity of Jesus, who he is and the promise of his word. With Mary, if you'd been here, Lord, we learn from Mary, stay with Jesus when your heart is absolutely broken and you will experience his compassion, his companionship with you. And you can trust that one day he will take care of Satan and his tyranny and every tear will be wiped away. So this is your opportunity to consider what is your if? What are you afraid of? The answer to every if is stay with Jesus. Stay with Jesus, seek him. He will give you a bigger vision of his identity and your faith will grow. This is abundant life. Let's pray. Jesus, you are awesome. And so we thank you that we get to see who you are and that you continue to show us who you are. Lord, I pray that our faith would be strengthened. I pray that we would keep seeking, searching, asking that we would stay with you every day until the day when we see you as you truly are in your glory. Lord, we ask this in your power and in your name. Amen.